You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, where's my jetpack? Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores issues of science, critical thinking, and secular humanism. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Ashley Noble, and I'll be your host this evening. With me today, I have Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Jem Newman. Hello. And Lauren Bailey. Hi. So we wanted to talk today about some science fiction technology that has made it into the real world. We've all had a bit of a week, and uh, it's going to be a bit more conversational than usual, meaning we didn't really write segments, and we're going to talk about <laughs> sci-fi tech anyway. It's going to be great. So my topic is virtual reality. While researching this topic, I discovered that the definition of virtual reality is way more controversial than I expected. <laughs> when I say virtual reality, what comes to the minds of my co-hosts? 90s movies where somebody is like <laughs> in one of those VR things in the mall with the giant headset and the, like there's usually a big um, apparatus around them and and then hijinks ensue. Hijinks, yes. Uh, Jeff Bridges getting zapped by a laser and pixelated and sucked into the computer. An old dude were riding a fake motorcycle really loudly on my television all friggin' afternoon. It was a two-minute video clip, Lord. <laughs> it felt like forever. Uh, okay. But, like, seriously, o- like Oculus Rift, basically. You want to explain VR. that to our less tech-savvy listeners? Yeah, basically, uh, you have a headset on uh, with some level of motion tracking. The headset will have uh, two stereoscopic screens, uh, one for each eye, so that you can see in three dimensions, you can perceive depth. Uh, you turn your head, and that turns your view in the world. And sometimes you move around and trip over your coffee table, and in so doing, <laughs> move your avatar in the virtual world. Uh, and then you vomit, because we still can't really manage movement properly. <laughs> and then you trip over the cat. Yeah. And then your kids start screaming. Uh, or, or you know, like, holode- holodeck is the ideal. And when I worked at a laser tag arena, we had, like, a very 90s one. And now it's something in between. I don't know. Yes, the holodeck would be ideal, where you can sort of go into the, the room and everything transforms and it's a seamless reality. Mm-hmm. But we all know bad things happen on the holodeck, so perhaps it's best that we don't get that technology anytime soon. Would any of you consider... A Viewmaster to be virtual reality? <laughs> what? Do you remember Viewmaster? Yes. Yeah, it had like those little cartridges <laughs> that you go chuk chuk and you can we see get, different things. Like, right? I love little film yeah. bits. I was I actually this argument. Yeah. I was really wanting uh, one of those for the kids. And you can like, those are cool. So you, you stick basically like your eyes in there, and you get a really long, like a wide view all the way around, and it, it looks like you're there. That's virtual reality. <laughs> Stereoscope is not virtual reality. So some people would uh, would disagree. Some people think that Viewmaster is uh, one of the steps on the road to virtual reality technology. No. No, it's not. <laughs> no. It's a long road. It's, it is a long road. It's a long road. So getting from... <laughs> nearer to what we are probably thinking of. Oh no, she's going supersonic already. <laughs> it's been a long day. <laughs> uh, so one definition that I found that I felt like probably encompasses what we are actually thinking about when we talk about virtual reality right now is the computer generated simulation of a three-dimensional image or environment that can be interacted with in a seemingly real or physical way by a person using special electronic equipment such as a helmet with a screen inside or gloves fitted with sensors. Yeah. That kind of match every what everybody's yeah, thinking. It, the thing that makes it is the interact with. Yes, that is the key part of the definition. Because I can't put my hand out in front of the Viewmaster and my <laughs> hand is now at Disney World with Donald. Yeah, like. yeah. Did you have the Disney World version as well? I had a Disney World Viewmaster. My friend did. I did not have mm-hmm. a Dis- I did not have a Viewmaster. I can't believe I was ever that fascinated with some pictures. It's great. It's great. <laughs> I had a whole bunch of like 
nature ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. So by that definition, like simple augmented reality, like AR, uh, would also be virtual reality. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a huge range, but um, it has an interesting history, and some of the ideas of when virtual reality began in fiction are uh, even more of a stretch than the Viewmaster thing. For example... Oh, no. <laughs> does anybody have any idea how, how far back the idea of virtual reality in fiction might go? Uh, I'm going to say Jules Verne, um, because everything goes back to Jules Verne. Okay. Um, but somebody can probably, like, make up some Greek god <laughs> bullshit or something. I don't know. How about Plato? Oh, I was yeah, yeah. So the, oh, the whole idea of the the, the, the platonic ideal yeah. and the and the cave of things going by outside and they've they've been um, the shadows portrayed on the cave walls. Right. I mean, like okay. that's a kind of virtual reality because people Plato. are Plato's cave. Jesus. Yeah. So I read no. some weird theories about virtual reality today. Okay. <laughs> So, um, discounting uh, Greek philosophers... As you do. As you do. There have been virtual realities imagined in science fiction since at least the 1860s. People have come up with actually really good definitions of the way a virtual reality might work all the way back then. There was a guy named Antonin Artaud in 1860 who was, I think, a playwright, and he thought that viewers of a play should suspend reality and imagine that everything going on in front of them was actual reality and should behave as such, which seems like a bad idea. Like, if you're in the audience of a play and a murder happens, you probably shouldn't believe that that's real and go up and try and stop it, etc. <laughs> I mean, there is a, a limit to suspension of disbelief. Yes. From the... they have, There's like a sci-fi Wikipedia <laughs> that has a very, very long article about virtual reality and how it's been such a trope in sci-fi throughout the years that has uh, a really good quote from it that I'd like to share. It says, One reason why virtual realities have been popular so long in sci-fi is the somewhat recursive fact that stories themselves are virtual realities though we interact with them only in a metaphoric sense. So the notion holds an intrinsic fascination for writers of stories, each of whom is, to a degree, a god creating an imaginary world which is real to the characters within it and partly real to the reader who shares their experience. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> Authors are creating a virtual reality and we are participating in it by reading it and hallucinating. Yeah. Like that meme that goes around that, you know, my, one of my hobbies is staring at dead trees and hallucinating. <laughs> <laughs> Tattooed dead trees, that's right. So, sneaking along the timeline of virtual reality is the aforementioned video clip that I found on YouTube of Morton Heilig's Sensorama. <laughs> that sounds fabulous. <laughs> oh boy. So this Look it up. <laughs> this might be something that we would interpret as like the first true virtual reality experience. And it was this quite large machine that you could uh, sit on and it promised that there would be sound and aroma and vibration. <laughs> it's a 4D movie theater. <laughs> Smell-o-vision. Uh, and so you sat on the seat and you sort of slid into the machine and then there was a very short, very bad video clip of like a point of view on a motorcycle driving through the desert and there was like a fan that would blow wind at you so that you were you felt like you were driving this motorcycle and the motorcycle um, I don't think that whatever you did on the seat would influence the movie because it was pre-recorded but what, like what year was this he I built the prototype of the sensorama in 1962 hmm. and five short films to displayed in it uh, but he was not able to get any more funding for his project so it kind of fizzled out after that so the smell part was like he'd just like throw gasoline around <laughs> it i was not able to find out what kind of smells were available and the whole idea just horrifies me so. <laughs> <laughs> like a scratch and sniff motorcycle oh god <laughs> I've... Um, it also had a uh, binaural sound which was oh, wow. like a big deal for virtual reality back then like stereo? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But there was... So you, you actually put your head, like, kind of inside the machine, so it came from oh. from both sides okay. of you. So I guess it would it was a better experience of riding a motorcycle through the desert. Okay. <laughs> How many dead mosquitoes did it throw at you? <laughs> oh. 
No, thank you. So at about that same time, there was a team at MIT who was putting together this gigantic headset, and this was the first uh, head-mounted display. And it was so heavy and so ridiculously large that it had to be suspended from the ceiling, and the people who saw it called it the Sword of Damocles. <laughs> it's just hanging above you threateningly while you observe this thing. <laughs> funny. <laughs> yeah. And it basically, it had some computer screens, but it was 1968, so they were probably pretty primitive, and mostly the output on the screens was like cone-shaped things. Talking like a uh, oscilloscope <laughs> sort, of, sort of thing. So science fiction has predicted and talked about the kinds of virtual reality that we have now for a long time. We talked about the holodeck and and stuff might be one of the more well-known examples. By far, the most influential work of cyberpunk fiction is Neuromancer by William Gibson, and it was apparently inspired by an experience that he had in a Vancouver arcade. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Quote, Even in this primitive form, the kids who were playing them were so physically involved, it seemed to me that they wanted to be inside the game, within the notational space of the machine. The real world had disappeared for them. (laughs) So this inspired Neuromancer, and uh, he wrote this in it, which was it was very early days of the internet, but it was it's interesting how he describes it in the book. Cyberspace, a consensual hallucination experienced daily by billions of legitimate operators in every nation, by children being taught mathematical concepts, a graphic representation of data abstracted from the banks of every computer in the human system. Unthinkable complexity, lines of light ranged in the non-space of the mind, clusters and constellations of data, like city lights receding. And then, this sounds very familiar to the technology that we have now. Through the use of electronic mirrors inside the computer, this beam is made to sweep back and forth across the lenses of heroes' goggles, in much the same way as the electron beam in a television paints the inner surface of the eponymous tube. The resulting image hands in space in front of Hero's view of reality. So Hero's not actually here at all. He's in a computer-generated universe that's drawing onto his goggles and pumping into his earphones. In the lingo, this imaginary place known as the Metaverse. Hero spends a lot of time in the Metaverse. It beats the shit out of the U-Storit. And that is uh, from Stevenson's Snow Crash, which is a cyberpunk novel from 1992. Um, And so I just, I think it's interesting how that would be a good way of describing like the PlayStation technology that we have now, yep. though you have goggles and you have a head oh, a headset that goes over your ears and it just sort of draws the universe in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, PlayStation VR. Uh, I I don't have one, but I've got a PlayStation upstairs. I could get one. <laughs> no, no, you can't. Um, the only virtual, like the only VR machine I played is the Virtual Boy. I played nah. Mario Tennis. With the red light lines. Where is we my version? We have two of them. Where are really? they? They're over there. Yeah. Are they with your power glove? Uh, we don't, don't have, have a power, power glove. glove. I, like, I, could, I, could bring, <laughs> I could bring one of the virtual boys out if you wanted to like, see, see it work. Will it make me sick? Uh, yes. Probably. <laughs> probably not, because you, there's no motion involved. It's mm-hmm. basically just a 3D monochrome, like stereoscopic 3D monochrome Well, you say probably not, but apparently about 40% of people who tried the Virtual Boy got really sick. Uh, I, I feel like that was just from maybe from playing it too long. I don't know. I don't know. It was very red and black. I I played it for like nine hours straight one day, and that was fine. <laughs> yeah, uh, fine. Just fine. I like Neuromancer quite a bit, and it also has one of the best like opening lines. Mm. It's one of like top ten all-time great opening lines. The sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. Lauren mentioned the power glove. The power glove was a very interesting piece of technology. It's so bad. <laughs> It was is really the the first affordable piece of quote unquote virtual reality technology that you could take home. It was yeah. about seventy five dollars US at the time, which not super cheap, but you could get it. Mm-hmm. It was not affordable for the Bailey household. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it was affordable for more people than other types of things. Yeah. let's say. So no it, matter how much we beg, there were two games that were supposed to work with it, but it did not work very well. So it was a a glove that you could wear on your hand and it had a controller on the outside of it. And it also had the numbers like zero to nine so that you could program it a little bit and you could operate it by like punching and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So it had a little bit of like motion feedback kind of deal going on. I've only ever seen it used like 
a wrist-mounted controller, basically. Mm -hmm. I never saw it actually work with any sort of haptic motion controls. Oh, dear. So, yeah, there were two games that were supposed to work with it, um, and neither of them were ever properly released in Japan. So, in Japan, the only way that you could actually use this controller was by programming it to work with your games you know, in an extra way that they were not really supposed to. But there was, like, one sort of beat-em-up game where you could punch the bad guys uh, and the puzzle game. And there was also supposed to be, like, a, a Tetris-style game where you could move around the pieces with the glove. That, that would have been cool. Yeah, and that never really happened. Oh, like, that that would be really neat to physically be like, I want this block over here. Yeah. Yeah. From your TV, it would be really cool for the time. <laughs> and now mm. we have the Wiimote, which mm. kind of does that. But I feel like nobody would really call the Wiimote virtual reality now. But, you know, under part of our definition, there are, you know, there are haptics. You can feel the feedback and you can control things with the remote that you're not actually touching. So I still like as cool as the idea of a power glove is, I have a hard time getting behind it because it doesn't feel immersive. Hmm. You know, like, yeah, it has... Even if you're using it to punch bad guys? I guess in my mind, I have that idea of my eyes being totally focused on whatever else and having the outside world obscured from vision Mm. there. And so that, as much as I can interact with things and, and it's on the TV and it's real time as close as that was for the time, it's still not... You know, I can still see just my TV screen, and then there's my bedroom wall, and there's the window, and there's people right. over there, right? So it's virtual not reality immersive. to you needs to be completely yeah, taken over reality. It, yeah, yeah. It means that, like, reality is blocked out, and virtual reality is all that I can feel, but I also need to be able to interact with it. Would so it's not just, like, a movie in one of those pods at the flotation spa that we went to. Would you need, <laughs> like, actual physical feeling? Like, say you were to punch a dude in a game, mm-hmm. would you need to feel as if your hand is being stopped? Or I don't know. follow all the way through, would that ruin the... I, I Like, I haven't mm-hmm. done it, so I don't know if I would need to feel that. I think that, like, you know, back in the, the N64 that had, like, the rumble packs on it, that was so cool and weird that I had that responsiveness. I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. I, I put a lot of Mario Kart with those rumble packs. Yeah. <laughs> and you like the, the haptics on your phone, like when the little ball bounces and that... Oh, yeah. That is so addictive to me. I just have this ridiculous little game where you bounce a ball and you try and get it through the slots of this corkscrew thing. And because I can feel the little ball bouncing every time it hits something, it just it makes me want to play it for 10 hours straight. <laughs> it's bizarre. <laughs> so the cool consumer technology kind of took a break between 1970 and 1990 and it became sort of a thing that was used it was they were developing a lot of cool like aviation and military and like medical applications for it like training Mm -hmm. stuff for virtual reality and so there wasn't a ton of different consumer products but there was the virtual boy which made a lot of people sick and uh was not very popular and was discontinued very quickly (laughs) i I was devastated because i loved my virtual boy Uh, i saw a screen capture of um the tennis and like yeah mario tennis it's great it looks kind of fun i played it the one time in kmart Mm -hmm. Kmart. yep yep yeah, I had Mario Tennis and the the Wario game for it. So in the 90s, it started becoming more of a consumer product. So there was the, the Sega VR headset, um, and then there was the Virtuality, which was a multiplayer networked VR entertainment system. And it had like a dedicated VR arcade at the Embarcadero Center in San Francisco. But it cost up to 73000 Per system. Oh my god. <laughs> so it wasn't That's something... That's not a consumer product. No, it wasn't something you could take home, but it was something you could go out to do with friends. Right. You know, and a bunch of you could play together. And that has sort of had a resurgence lately. Like, there's one at yep. the outlet mall here that Dave and I have been to, and it's really cool. There's one in my old office building. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I think so there's a few of them. You've done it? I have. Have yeah. you done it, Lauren? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I, I got over 30, and all of that stuff just went, nope, you're too old for this crap. <laughs> <laughs> and you Lies. haven't, eh? I have not. I am concerned about feeling ill hmm. with these things. It's worth a shot. Like, 
the when I did it the one time, well, I'll probably get an Oculus Rift or something, and you can you can try it. But <laughs> yeah, uh, the one I chose, the one that Dave and I chose, I didn't want to play any sort of shooting game or flying through space shooting things. That's a lot but, of them. <laughs> yeah, but they had this game where you could basically the whole point was to climb shit. Yeah. <laughs> and so it has two controllers and you could like use them as hands and climb up walls and then jump and stuff. But um when you jumped and missed you fell and it really felt like you were falling off a yeah. cliff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which was uh it was quite an interesting experience the first twenty five times that I fell off a cliff. <laughs> and then you kind of got used to it, right? But I walked into walls all over like Was it cartoony or was it It was pretty more cartoony, yeah, yeah, for this one. Um but they definitely had some realistic ones. But yeah, I smashed into the wall several times walking around because you were supposed to only sort of walk around enough to orient yourself and then use the controller to move. Yeah. Um, but I was bad at remembering that I was not a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> it was that immersive that I just cool. kept walking into the wall. Yeah. <laughs> the the one that I did, like there were a couple like zombie shooting galleries or whatever, mm. uh, but uh, the, the really cool one was literally just like you take an elevator up to the top of a building and there's a plank and you like walk out onto the plank and you look down nope. and nope. it's, it's nope. super scary and then doing you it. can like jump off and then you can get like a jetpack and fly nice. around and there's your jetpack. There is my jetpack. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've reached the end of our podcast. I think that's it, guys. We right? found it. It's we done. Found the jetpack. <laughs> so yeah, systems like that started appearing uh, in the '90s, and then uh, we sort of jumped to today, where we have really high quality uh, virtual reality headsets that you can buy and use at home. Like they're. 600 bucks or so as a peripheral for your computer. So like, again, yeah, you still need an expensive computer. To run. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's expensive, but it is attainable. Yeah. Like the $75 power glove was. Yeah. It's not $72,000. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's still a little bit out of reach. Um, and interestingly, a lot of what has made virtual reality in homes so possible is the fact that they use a lot of cell phone technology. So, like, a lot of the, the screen technology and the tiny little processors and... The gyroscopes and stuff like yeah, that, Yeah, yeah, all of the... I'm just moving my phone around to try and demonstrate my point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all of my wrist action. <laughs> yeah, all of the stuff that tells your phone, you know, how to play the little ball game <laughs> is all part of virtual reality sets, and it's made it doable. And there's also ridiculous virtual reality systems like the Google Cardboard. The what? Uh, yep. They they sell a piece of cardboard essentially where you can put your phone three inches in front of your face and wear it like a virtual reality set. Yep. <laughs> heard of this? It's a real thing. <laughs> the look on Laura's face right Thank now. God. <laughs> oh. You basically like you know you've seen the Nintendo label of things. It's yeah like, predates predates that, but yeah you you can just fold it up, stick it on your head, slot your phone in there, and your phone is your VR screen. Hey. Yeah. I think I have seen something like that, but I thought it was somebody's, like, 10-cent version of VR that they're like, look how cool I am! I didn't realize Google was being assholes and selling those. <laughs> Real product by Google. <laughs> Are they, are they? Do they sell it? I, like I thought, you could just like print it. You can print probably it out, just yeah. print it out, but I did see it for sale somewhere. Okay. Something that is kind of related, but not quite on the same vein, is like holograms and stuff that they're now starting to do, like for even for news programs and for performances, like the the Michael Jackson thing, um, where they had him perform years after he died. Um, and the the holograms that I really like are you can build like these little prisms for your phone, and then there are apps and programs that will let you basically make a hologram on top of your phone. So oh, that's it was, cool. It's similar to the Google Cardboard thing where it's a cheap version of the <laughs> cool thing that other rich people have. <laughs> help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Virtual reality, been a science fiction trope since maybe Plato, depending on your definition. <laughs> uh, and Plato, now, that well-known science fiction, <laughs> speculative fiction author. He was, kind of. Yeah, okay. Uh, Fair. <laughs> Uh, and now it's something that we can have in our own homes and pretend to be climbing up giant cartoon walls and smash into walls. I really want, like, haptics. Mm -hmm. Like, full-body haptic suits. So you can, like, like actually move around. And 
feel things. Do you want like the omnidirectional treadmill underneath you so you can actually walk around? Yeah, and, like I don't, that, or like okay, a ball. That or is what I want with VR yeah. stuff as it is. I don't think I'm it's like because really I don't want to walk into though. stuff. Like I don't like. I think it would just have to be a giant a ball under there. Yeah. Like, but uh, but like even a giant ball. Like I think it's gonna feel weird. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because you're gonna, you're, you like, you're gonna to feel like you're on a treadmill. It's not gonna be like walking. I don't know. I think you need like a room, but I like. It's not just seeing. Like I want to be able to like touch stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be able to like pick something up. You know pet what I kitties? mean? Pet uh, virtual. No. I, like I've got I've got cats. I don't want to pet them. <laughs> you're such a monster. <laughs> You know that as soon as they have the ability for you to actually touch stuff in virtual reality, like, first there's going to be porn, and then there's going to be, like, cat petting games. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the order, yeah. It's already virtual reality porn. Well, yeah, but, like, yeah, you know, once you can feel things, that's going to be the number one uh, application. Yeah, yeah. Like, I... <laughs> God. So, the, the one thing that you, got, that you have to imagine, when you imagine the Star Trek universe... Is the people whose job it is to squeegee out the holodeck? <laughs> no, no, that thing is self cleaning, man. Like, yeah. come on. They just reverse so osmosis rooms. everything in there, and well, yeah, like, one, like one of the one of the reasons it's so bad when it goes wrong is because, like, I think in an early might be the uh, the big goodbye, uh, one of the early holodeck goes wrong episodes. They're like, oh yeah, we can't just shut it off because it'll vaporize everybody inside. You're like, why would you build it that way? <laughs> so no one has to squeegee. It. Yeah. <laughs> Quark would yeah, clean the, those damn things. Yeah. The oven, the, the self-clean so, oven yeah. setting. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I'm just going to burn everybody's memories out yeah. of here. <laughs> so speaking about holodecks, Lauren has a whole segment about Star Trek technology. You know that there's at least two generations of engineers and scientists, including astronaut Dr. Mae Jameson and NASA engineer Harold White, that have been inspired by Star Trek. It's hard not to be inspired by the gleaming chrome or harvest orange of the bridge, the handheld gadgets, and the medical advances. So let's take a look at how some of these extrapolate to the world around us today. Please state the nature of the medical emergency. This segment is dedicated to Laura and her love of all things Star Trek. Thanks. So item one, my favorite, transparent aluminum. In Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, the bridge crew of the Enterprise time travel back to 1984 to rescue some whales and... Well, if you're not familiar, you should watch it. Even if you are familiar, it's an even-numbered TOS movie, so it's a hoot. It was made in the mid-80s, though, so all relevant warnings apply. It's... Yeah. With that caveat, it is <laughs> yeah. super great. Suspend your reality. Oh, Scotty talking to that computer. Hello, computer. Anyway... 1984 plexiglass was not strong enough to hold enough water to transport the two whales, George and Gracie, and their habitat while still being thin enough to make. So Scotty, after he figures out how to work the computer, shows the engineers in 1984 how to create the polymer transparent aluminum. Amazing. I've never seen this movie. Me neither. (laughs) I haven't seen it. I know what we're doing tonight! (laughs) Sleeping? It's oh. it's fun. Like it's soup it's super campy. Mm-hmm. It is a fun movie. All right, I'll watch it at some point as long as I can do something else while there are whales yes. in it. So yep, it, Star Trek colon save the whales. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Today we have transparent aluminum armor, which is both lighter and stronger than bullet resistant glass. What transparent aluminum armor? Yeah, I was so excited when when I heard that they had developed this because I'm like, oh my god, Scotty. <laughs> The U.S. military, of course, has been testing a product called ALON, or A-L-O-N, which is made of aluminum oxynitride, which is aluminum, oxygen, and nitrogen. This polymer starts as a powder, which is molded, heated, and cooled rapidly. The strength and resistance of the cooled product is similar to sapphire, and it gets stronger and more clear with polishing. I don't know how it gets stronger with polishing, but some sort of witchcraft. Huh. That's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like bullet-resistant glass, the armor has layers. There's an outer layer that has the aluminum oxynitride. Then there's the layer of glass. And then there's an interior layer, which is an, another polymer backing. This alon can resist 50 caliber armor-piercing bullets, and it's really expensive, so it's not standard issue. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's wild to me to think that something made even partially out of glass can resist 
bullet yeah. piercing armor. Bullet yeah. piercing armor and anti aircraft. Armor piercing bullet. Yeah. Yeah. Words. <laughs> armor I'm just imagining bullet. like a giant bullet and like a, <laughs> a piece of armor flying through it. Bullet bill. Yeah. Fruit ninja. <laughs> no, that's what you have the star for. So you can explode bullet bill. It can also withstand anti aircraft guns. They are going to be. How many of them? Well, not like ten. <laughs> and at what range? Like they're, two. Like... They're testing, but it's again way too cost prohibitive to put on the outside of all the U.S. military planes and military. Is it also heavy? No, it's fairly light. Cool. You can wear it as armor. Hmm. Well, just because you can wear something as armor doesn't mean you hmm. can coat a plane in it. No, but it is light enough to fly. Item two is the food replicator. T. Earl Grey, hot. In the twenty-fourth century, replicators really take, took. Troublesome time travel tenses. Anyway, they take off. <laughs> the original Star Trek series had food synthesizers that fed the crew food Lego. And the Lego. <laughs> True! They were like what? little bricks. <laughs> you would see the food synthesizers on the original Star Trek show. TOS, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. TOS. And they would have like these little food jello molds that looked like Lego. I believe you. It's just a really funny idea. That's I know. why I laughed. After the original series, the animated series from the 1970s showed synthesizers producing realistic-looking food. But Next Gen introduced the Replicator. Originally presented as a way to order up food and then disappear the dirty dishes, Replicators can create any inanimate matter as long as the desired molecular structure is on file. If you want to debate this in-universe extra complexity that forbids the replication of living beings, dilithium, or latinum, email Jim at... <laughs> the best thing about replicators is that they can produce any foods ethically, perfectly, and instantly. The modern equivalent is still very far behind. 3D food printers can technically print with anything that can be pureed. Whatever is being printed must be forced through a syringe mechanism that can be extruded onto the plate. Mm. <laughs> yep. The result is very cool, but it takes a comparatively long time as opposed to just an instant food. I'm just imagining, like, you punching in an order code for dinner, and then you hear that uh, 90s uh, printer noise. (laughs) Dot matrix. (laughs) Yes, the dot matrix (laughs) printer noise. Well, yeah, it's like, oh, you want, I don't know, mashed potatoes? That'll be three hours. (laughs) I think it's seen in Star Trek VI where a bowl of mashed potatoes gets vaporized. (laughs) But there are, like, some really cool... Pastry chefs in particular who are using 3D printers to yep. make ridiculously cool stuff. Right As now. we saw in MasterChef Australia this past season. Yeah, yeah, and I've also seen like some of those tasty videos going around of... Yeah, like they usually, from what I can tell, it's usually for something that is far more about the look of food and being yeah. able to say that you made it of food as opposed to the taste and texture of it. Or it's, yeah, like a decal-type thing, some kind of decoration. Like, using it for some kind of a sugary something or other could be a good option there. Or chocolate Mm -hmm. would be, like, a 3D printer to use for chocolate would be great if you want to build certain things. According to the 3D uh, printing business directory, there are 15 companies, at least, that produce food-grade 3D printers. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is specifically for chocolate. Mm -hmm. There's one that's specifically for different types of cheeses. So that one is really interesting for cheeses, because there are some cheeses that a pureed or, like, semi-liquid texture is perfectly fine, and there's other cheeses that you're like, what did you do to my Parmesan? Like, I just don't understand everything about the cheese does not make sense in the way it needs Why to Why is work. everything Velveeta? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, because, yeah, you can, like, you could technically make a 3D printed pizza, but the cheese is going to be gross on it because... There is one specifically designed to do all the different layers of a pizza. <laughs> I, I, think I, I think I saw that one too, but at least that like, or something to it, something similar, but they were saying, you know, the herbs and the cheese were still put on by hand. So they yeah. did the crust and they did the sauce so you can get perfectly uniform things, but you still need to put, like, if you want shredded cheese, you still have to do that. That mm-hmm. crust is going to be terrible. Oh, oh yeah, talking yeah. like worse than Delicio. Yeah, it's uh, it's cardboard basically. Oh yeah, because again, it's prioritizing uniformity and function rather than texture and taste and yeah. anything that makes a good pizza crust good. One interesting application that I have seen of these things though is that companies are using it to make specifically pureed foods, but that look like what they are. So that they'll, they'll take 
pureed carrots and they will 3D print them into like carrot coins. And so then for people who have dysphagia, particularly older adults, then you can serve them these things that look like carrots or they look like beans and it's so it's not just green mush on the plate i watched a video of them doing like this lobster dish with this pureed lobster and then it ended up looking like real lobster mm-hmm. so they took a lobster they pureed it and then they printed it out into a lobster shape yeah. <laughs> but if you can't chew <laughs> it's a lobster nugget i yeah, understand it, it, for 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 the average person it seems like why would you do this but for somebody who's only getting like mush yeah. you know it's like oh this looks like a you know it's like the uh first year chemistry lab where you take copper and then you do a whole bunch of stuff to it and then you end up with copper at the end yep it made me so mad (laughs) (laughs) these are not for you we did a whole bunch of things and now we just have less copper (laughs) (laughs) this is why alchemy doesn't work (laughs) and still none of these food replicators will atomize my dirty dishes at the end Yeah, yeah, they gotta work on that. None of them will also make me a cup of tea. Item three, tablets. Personal access data device, which is also called a pad. The two Ds at the end. Yep. NBC production budget constraints in the 1960s gave us the iPad. I'm serious. The original Star Trek series featured clean lines and touchscreens because the prop department couldn't afford knobs and dials and switches like in real spacecraft. That's so funny. And now we're just like, get rid of all the buttons! Yep. So, that's so funny. Everything needs to be smooth. The computer screens on the Enterprise were called Okudograms. Okudograms. Michael Okuda. After their designer. Yeah. Yeah. The graphics were created on transparent colored sheets and pasted onto the set. Nice. When the computer needed to do something new, artists could create a software upgrade that did what the plot required with no hardware upgrades at all. Sound familiar? In the original series, officers used electronic clipboards, especially Ohura, with light-up buttons and styluses. By TNG, those had been replaced with pads, the personal access data devices, that are eerily similar in function and shape to our modern iPads and tablets. And that's not by accident, of course. Modern Apple products are designed with the comfort of the user in mind. The touchscreen and one-button design make them less intimidating than previous technologies, and much more akin to the super-simple, no-budget Trekkian tablets. <laughs> Item 4. Computer. Accessing library computer data. In 2015, the Amazon Echo hit the market. It's a product directly modeled after the all-knowing, omnipresent Star Trek computer. As of 2017, you can use the word computer to wake up your Alexa, and you can get a voice mod to make it sound like Majel Barrett. We recently got an Alexa dot because it came with the chair I bought. <laughs> um, and our cat is named Lexa. <laughs> so <laughs> this has already caused several misunderstandings with our little computer. Can you change what it's called? Well, like Lauren was just saying, you can make okay, an answer can... to computer. Well, yeah. good, because I would imagine that would be very annoying for people named Alexa. Yes. <laughs> we've, we've changed the cat's name to Cake Pop. It's just easier. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The developers specifically said that they were looking to model it and the whole immersive system after the Star Trek computer, which is really cool. So the one feature that I find very useful on it is the fact that you can set multiple timers at the same time and call them different things. Mm. So if we're making dinner, we often have like both our phone timers going and the microwave timer going, and instead you can just say, set another timer. I do have a couple of other quickies, because there's so much Star Trek tech that has just seeped into the real world. The iTop computers from TNG became the embarrassing Google Glass. No one uses it, so just forget about it. The iTop computers? Do you, do you mean from the game? No, the, the Locutus of Borg thing. That Picard oh, hair. that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Video conferencing was a standard way for shows and movies, Trek included, to say, wow, we're living in the future here. Now we have products and software like FaceTime, Zoom, and Skype, and they mean I have to put on pants to answer the damn phone. Communicators are now small enough to be worn like a badge, similar to what's standard from TNG on. Some advanced hospitals and care homes are using them to avoid loud and obnoxious code calls in the in the hallways. That's a good idea. Yeah. So it's nice and subtle. You get your little communicator. Universal translation is also now available. Well, for Earth-based languages anyway. Hmm. It's not instantaneous, nor is it as seamless and perfect as that on Star Trek, but it's available. We have another 45 years before, before Zephyrin Cochran makes a crude warp flight, so we have time to perfect that technology. I remember when I first saw the AR like uh, live translation of like signs and stuff yeah. on an iPhone, it was that 
was a moment where I'm like, oh, this, yeah, we live in the future. <laughs> you live in a spaceship, dear. Yeah. <laughs> Phasers became stun guns. The electrodes still need to make contact with the victim, but it's a weapon, so there's no telling how much money and time is available to perfect it. And that leads me to the not-so-good stuff. Yeah. You yeah. mean all technology is not good? <laughs> Bless your utopian heart. Keen observers of Trek know of the post-atomic horror, which is supposed to happen between 2054 and 2079. We first get an allusion to it in the makeup of the jury in Encounter at Farpoint, the pilot for TNG. The folks from the jury look like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Flash Gordon, and the villagers from Monty Python and the Holy Grail decided to have a costume swap and drink for six days straight. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Interesting point. That whole part of the episode was added because Paramount decided we want uh, our first episode of this new show to be a two-parter. And they're like, sorry, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, two-parter. And they're like, uh, well, I guess we'll come up with something. So, so they added that whole Q plot. That's where Q yep. came from. During the time of this post-atomic horror, the Vulcans make first contact with humans because of Zephyr and Cochrane. And in less than two generations, humanity was finally able to eliminate most, if not all, poverty, disease, war, and hunger. Along with these, a lot of other things disappeared from humanity, including hopelessness, despair, and cruelty. Right. Good luck. Yeah. Earth's governments all join together and form United Earth, which later becomes the United Federation of Planets. In less than 100 years, humans apparently get their shit together enough to eradicate most of the flaws that we've carried with us for the past few million years. And we form a huge government military industrial complex to rule the world. Yay! Yeah, the more uh, the more you learn about Star Trek, especially as it gets into DS9, you're like, oh, like we think of this as a socialist utopia, but it's got to be tankies running the show, right? It's totally tankies. What are tankies? Uh, authoritarian communists. Okay. So Star Trek Earth is a benevolent totalitarian society. Yeah. Everything is done on Trek's Earth is done under the watchful eye of the Federation. We don't often hear about those who oppose the unification on Earth. Well, we tried, but Fox cancelled them after 13 episodes. There's a bunch of weird stuff. Like, it really seems like a pretty obvious Civil War illusion, which leads it into a whole bunch of, like, noble Southern soldiers post-war. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of a gross thing that's been in fiction for a while. When you dig deep into any utopian or sci-fi society, you end up in a totalitarianism nightmare. Even if it's Utopia. I mean, we go back to Thomas More. It's not great for the for everyone. Well, when you look at the origins of futurism, and you look to the Italian futurists, for example, mm -hmm. they were best best friends with fascists, and it seems like science fiction has a long love affair with knowing what's best for everybody, and the nerds will rule the day because the nerds are the smart ones. And there's really kind of an ugly aspect to that, right? Yeah, and I took out a whole bunch of my segment because the week we're recording this has not been a good one for our neighbors to the south, and the rest of my segment got really depressing. And I'm going to turn it over to Jim now for more depressing segments, so we'll leave it where it is. Star Trek, yay. Totilitarianism, nay. I was going to talk about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is basically just Wikipedia on a smartphone, but I couldn't possibly waste my segment talking about something so fun and interesting and not at all grim. And doesn't make you panic. So I was thinking I would say something meaningful about The Terminator and the modern machinery of war, but for the first time in recent memory, I did not actually prepare a segment for this show, really. <laughs> uh, I jotted a couple notes down, but I spent my time mostly doing revisions for a mostly unrelated short story I've been working on instead. So in place of my usual thing, let's just kind of chat about this stuff. People who know me know that over the last several years, I've gone from being, you know, your, your bog-standard skeptic techno-optimist, to having a much more cynical outlook. And these days I have deep misgivings about tech culture and technology in general. Some of that has to do with the current political moment that we live in and my growing awareness of vast systemic problems that have plagued society for centuries, uh, but, you know, I was blissfully unaware of. Um, 
You weren't alive for most of those centuries. We'll give you a pass on those. Yeah. And I think some of it, too, has to do with my growing awareness of uh, the way technology and capitalism interface, uh, having worked in the field of tech for 12 years or so now. So why? Why do I feel these deep misgivings about the way technology is used? Why is kind of the the point? It's the question and the answer. I feel like we should always be asking why, why these technologies exist, why they're developed. It's convenient, right, that we can unlock our phones with our faces, but who is funding the development of that technology and why are they doing it? What do they hope to gain? Facial recognition is incredibly useful in surveillance technology. It is useful for identifying people that the government is looking for. Let's change tracks for a sec. Let's talk more about Terminator stuff, right? Um, Less Philip K. Dick, please. Right. So you've all seen Big Dog, right? The Boston Dynamics robot? No. Let me opens doors? I'll show you a picture. It, it, like, it looks like a donkey, actually. I'll, uh, I'll pull up a, a quick video, and we'll link this in the show notes. Oh, dear God, that thing is terrifying. Oh, I haven't seen that. Why does it sound like a mosquito on speed? I it's know. It's all the machine. Or maybe I've seen it without the packs that it's carrying. Because the legs look familiar. It looks a lot like a, an animal, right? A lot of people I've heard mention thinking that it's cute. You know, like at one point in this video, somebody like pushes it. And it you can see it stumble and get its balance, right? Yeah. It's, it's really, it's fascinating technology. It's really cool. And it's, you know, it, like it's like a droid from Star Wars. Mm-hmm. It's neat it's cute it's fun like maybe it's scary it does kind of look like uh, one of those wolves that attacks you in uh, like wolfenstein but it's also a military robot uh whose development was funded by darpa the u.s military's defense advanced research projects agency as such what it represents is pretty terrifying this is why i find techno optimism troubling it's it, it can easily gloss over the reality with, ooh, shiny, cool, We're, it's the future now. I feel personally attacked. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my point is, when we're looking at a new technology, you know, like the space race brought us all sorts of fantastic newfangled gadgets, like microwaves and Teflon and what have you, right? And Tang. Everybody's got a Sputnik in their backyard still. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, we, but we should not lose sight of the context, uh, which was like the threat of thermonuclear annihilation. Mutually assured destruction. Right. That sort of undergirded that march of progress. And a lot of the benefits that we end up seeing with these technologies, you know, in our phones or in our computers, in our graphics cards, whatever, a lot of those benefits that we see are silver linings at best. They are uh, artifacts that aren't actually the the goal, but they're, they're spun off of these projects whose actual goal is often military in nature. So we're heading toward a future where the Terminator comes and murders us. <laughs> No, because we will never perfect time travel. (laughs) It will not happen. The way I see it, the Terminator doesn't have to be truly autonomous for it to be worthy of concern. I personally am not worried about a Skynet situation. Not at least in my lifetime or the lifetimes of my children. I've had this argument with skeptics before uh, who are very concerned about existential threats posed by AI. And... You know, like, I'm, I'm not an expert. I have a computer science degree with a specialization in AI. I worked in machine learning for a decade off and on, but I'm not an expert. But general, general AI, that's not on the visible horizon. No. We, instead, what I'm worried about is Terminators that are remote controlled. Because mm-hmm. we have them already. Drones, uh, or UAVs, uh, although they don't have to be aerial vehicles... They allow us to wage war while distancing ourselves from our killing. They turn soldiers into video game players. Now, the argument that this new technology is bad because it allows us to kill more efficiently and at a farther distance, I mean, like, you could, have, you could apply the same argument to muskets, right? <laughs> yeah, any, any kind of catapults or right. something like that. I don't think that makes it a bad argument, although, like, you're not going to stop the march of technology. I'm not optimistic about putting any particular genie back in any particular bottle, 
But robots and drones, not only do they affect the way soldiers wage war and the way generals wage war, but they can also affect the way politicians think about waging war and the way citizens think about war. The United States has been de facto at war for 17 years. It's been 17 years of unending war. That's a long time. If you're a drone pilot, you can be at war in the morning and then go home to your family in the evening. And it's a normal day. Fewer and fewer of our people, our soldiers, are dying in war now that we have drones. And the cost of war is a lot less visible when it's not being fought on our shores anyway. Now, I understand that the idea that soldiers are not dying in war is an attractive one to a lot of people. Um, I know several people who are involved in the armed forces. I'm not particularly close with any of them. My feelings about their involvement are complex, but I don't wish them ill. But what I'm concerned with is that we're creating these machines that make it easier to wage war. And in so doing, war loses its immediacy. It loses its impact. The barriers to fighting a war are lowered. And I don't want war to be an easy state to be in. I wanted this to be a conversation. <laughs> Please feel free to jump in at any point. I'm sorry, no, you this didn't. Is a, this, is a, this is a dirge. It's well-written, honey, and you make a fabulous, though depressing point, and it's very difficult to jump in on that. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well said, Jim. I don't want more of, quote-unquote, our soldiers to die either, but I think the point of if politicians don't see kids going off to war and dying, there's a lot less incentive to make the war stop. There are kids enlisting in the army right now who have never known a time that we were not at war, that the States was not at war. Yeah. Not us, even though it feels very close. Yeah. It feels close for us. Imagine how close it feels in Iraq or Syria. Yeah, that's that's who I'm worried about. The people who we don't see. Yeah. And who don't have the luxury of American drones killing Syrian drones. Instead, they're bombing right. Syrian hospitals. Mm -hmm. Warfare has become totally asymmetric um, because, in large part, of American hegemony. But it's unlikely to remain that way. But I don't want to make this just about, oh no, maybe they'll get drones too, and won't that be <laughs> yeah. bad? No, it's already bad. It's okay for us to care about people who are from other countries. <laughs> right? Very much so. So it's not just misgivings about a Skynet-like scenario that makes the Terminator scary. Does it matter if, the, if Schwarzenegger was sent back in time to kill John Connor by a sentient computer or just by a different nation? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not it's not even just militaries we have to contend with. I mean, maybe you, for some reason, trust the military. <laughs> I don't know why anybody would do that, but hey, you know, people have uh, have different opinions about these things. But military hardware is being manufactured by private companies like Lockheed Martin and Boeing. The operation of these UAVs is typically outsourced to private contractors as well. Technology of this type, I haven't seen this happen with armed UAVs, but you see it with surveillance drones all the time, and you see it with, you know, arms. But technology like this often finds its way into the hands of quasi-military private contractors that the United States insists aren't really mercenary companies, like Academy, formerly Z Services, formerly Blackwater. Uh, sidebar, Academy really is an innocuous sounding name, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I mean, it, it barely... It's very Umbrella Corp. <laughs> it, it barely calls to mind at all the indiscriminate massacre of more than a dozen Iraqi civilians. Well, <sighs> I mean, people can 3D print guns now. There's no reason why we can't 3D print an entire attack drone. Yeah. Very soon. Mm -hmm. If not now. What I'm trying to say is that the potential future of fully automated robots on the battlefield is scary for obvious sci-fi reasons, right? But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there are people today who effectively have to deal with Terminators being sent after mm -hmm. them. These Terminators are just operated by humans in another country.
all negativity accounted for but aside at the moment we have some pretty cool stuff and some of it works better than what we saw in tv and in the movies and that now partially because like you were saying ashlyn with we actually have good technology now that can get us to the things that we wanted to see but some of the stuff is still we're yeah we're in the future but it's still not that great like it's good but it's not amazing it's not magic you know and that's part there's so many things like the replicator i guess the mm -hmm. one thing i'm thinking of i came across this machine that builds itself like the replicator and what it essentially is is it's a keurig for food Um, So you put in these discs of dehydrated food and it mixes it and heats it and serves it up hot for you. And that's great, but it's still a boy soup. (laughs) No, no. I was thinking of that Heinz commercial. Do you remember that Heinz commercial? But it still serves up small portions of dehydrated, (laughs) warmed up food, right? You're not getting a gourmet meal, so it is not the replicator. And I feel like there's a lot of technologies that are really cool, but still in that stage now. Well, I always liked on Star Trek how they made it pretty clear that, like, replicated food was pretty good, but the homemade stuff was better still. Like, they never made it sound like replicator food was the be-all and end-all. There were still people on the show who really preferred to cook, and if you were having a fancy date, you would cook for real. Okay. And I thought that was cool. And then there's things that I think the technologies are cool, and maybe this is just me being a bit of a Luddite, but at the same time, I hear Jem talk about how he wants this. He wants to physically be able to climb things in his virtual reality, and that I'm like, there are trees outside (laughs) and rocks outside. Like, it's cool. But you could get hurt out there. Well, you can, you will obviously get hurt in the room as you did, Ashlyn. So I think it's not that it's not cool to come up with these things, but sometimes it's like, but that exists in such a better form and you are reinventing the wheel so hard right now. Like, why? And I don't want people to think that we're all doom and gloom because there's things that are being developed out there without a military application or without a nefarious purpose. And yeah, I would much rather spend a day outside. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to climb any trees right now because I'm almost 40 and my body doesn't do that anymore. Well, that's, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> tree. And it's not even one that you have to kick if the hologram goes away in memory of a real tree. <laughs> so another quick, just a brainstorm. What are some sci-fi technologies that you are surprised we don't have yet? Jetpacks. That's always an interesting one. (laughs) We have jetpacks. They just don't work very well. We haven't figured out small, safe fuels. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, battery technology. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. because so much of what we have now runs on batteries, and batteries are getting better and better, but they're still a huge chunk of things, and they still, you know, you still have to plug in your phone every day or twice a day or something like that. Like, you still... We have electric vehicles, but they're way heavier because they have to carry around this huge battery. And like until we give up our reliance on fossil fuels, they won't mm-hmm. do, they won't make electric cars that are light and airy and fun. Mm-hmm. And they are trying. Oh, they, 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 the breakthrough is yeah. hard to find, apparently. I think they'd find it a little bit easier if they didn't have... Uh, that's me being cynical, and this is not a cynical segment. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I want to say, with all of this automation, you know, we should see a significant reduction in work hours, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Because there is a lot more productivity happening. But, like, obviously, that's because of concentration of wealth, right? Yeah. There is more wealth, it, but it is less evenly distributed. And so instead of us being able to have a house on a single salary for somebody who works 20 hours a week, we, you know, that money goes to CEOs. Yeah. That does rely on social structures. And we have to get our social structures up to where they are to support our technology structures. You know, guaranteed minimum income, guaranteed housing. It seems like our podcast always comes back here. (laughs) Yeah. Let's make the world a better place for the people who live in it and not just the, the 1%. The question was, what technologies are you surprised we don't have yet? I'm surprised we have. I'm surprised the proletariat hasn't risen up yet. Um, it's not a technology. Uh, I like. I, I'm surprised we don't have uh, cultured meat products on shelves yet. 
Mm. Um, yeah. A&W's trying. <laughs> it's, it's a good burger. It, it freaks me out. Oh, oh it's really? so good. I, I've had it, but it freaks me out. Yeah, but it was tasty. For our American listeners, uh, Canadian A&W has the Beyond Meat Burger available. Which uh, you guys can find at places like Whole Foods. Uh, yes, but but we cannot. I uh, had some smuggled up. Yeah, yeah, we bought some when we were in the States. But yeah, uh, in Canada, the only place you can get the Beyond Meat Burger, basically, is uh, A&W. And in the States, the only place you can get it is in a store. <laughs> I want teleportation. I'm not surprised we don't have it, but I want yeah, it. Yeah, like I'm on the same boat. I think that would be such a step up, but I think that comes after amazing battery capacity somehow. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm running like 10 steps in the future saying things I want, not things that I think are going to be possible in my lifetime. Okay, so do you want to get into the uh, transporter problem then? Or? No, no. no. Okay. All right, well, we tried to end this show on a happy note. What are we talking about next month, Jim? Well... Uh, remember when I said I couldn't possibly talk about something as fun and interesting as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on the podcast? Oh, dear. Well, I lied, because next month we're talking about Wikipedia. Interesting. All right, good night, everyone. <laughs> good night. Bye. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. Our first Star Trek reference was that shitty. We talked about the holodeck already. Okay, no, yeah. that's fair. That's fair. It's because yeah. you're not paying attention to Ashlyn.